for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Today, I have the great pleasure of talking to my friend Charlie Morris, who is a documentary filmmaker who is self-taught and kind of jumped into this without uh, funding or experience or credentials and has made some really important films that have actually changed the world. Two of his films have affected how zoning and development happens in our neighborhood here in the Triangle of North Carolina uh, around Umstead State Park and also Bolin Creek in Carborough, North Carolina. And he's currently working on a project highlighting the environmental and social damage that salmon farming is doing, especially to indigenous communities that have had a long relationship with salmon on not only an economic, but also a spiritual basis for millennia. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation and maybe you'll even get motivated to grab a camera and start changing the world yourself. I know that's what's happened for me. Here we go. Charlie Morris, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thanks, Howie. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad we're finally getting a chance to uh, to have a public conversation. We've had we've had many delightful private ones, and yep, and a lot of them have been about pretty depressing topics. So it's it's a testament <laughs> to to your spirit that uh, I enjoy talking to you. <laughs> yes, that is a good point. Yes, they have been pretty uh, depressing topics to those on the outside looking in. Yeah, they're like, why do you spend so much time thinking about all these? impossible objectives, but I don't know. It's what keeps me going. Mm. So yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your background and trajectory and, and the sorts of things that have interested you. Um, probably around, let's see, 2015, I suddenly decided that I wanted to start editing videos um, I never thought I'd be filming or anything like that, but then, um, you know, I just started playing around with cameras and video equipment. And next thing I know, I had put together this short little thing about a woodworker and I couldn't find anyone else to edit it. So I edited it. And then a friend of mine saw it and he at the time was a filmmaker and he said, Charlie, I would like to hire you for a project. And the next thing I knew um, I was filming inside of a medium security prison, and I was in a room with about 15 to 20 inmates and about 15 puppies. And it was a puppies in prisons pilot program <laughs> and uh, in North Carolina. And it, it was great. But that first day, I was super nervous. You know, I, there weren't any guards with us. We were just in this great big open room, just me and two women and 15 puppies and 15 medium security prison inmates. And um, yeah, but anyway, so that's where I started. Um, and then I found I really liked the documentary style of just filming and interacting with people and getting to hear their stories. And then every project I did after that just kind of grew on that uh enjoyment. And then I really found myself settling into the niche of environmental causes and social justice causes. So that's most of what I've worked on. Um, yeah. I mean, I can go into more detail, but that's kind of like where I started. Yeah. So 
I was struck by like 2015, you go, hey, I think I'd like to do videos. I'd like to edit mm -hmm. video. Like, did you have any background? Like, where the hell did that come from? No, no. Um, I mean, I guess where it came from initially was I love talking to people. Um, I had done sort of like a lay person style of spiritual counseling for a long time. And so I just loved talking to people and um, kind of interviewing them, hearing their life story. I'm one of those people where a person lays out their heaviest stories and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. You must be exhausted listening to this. And I'm sort of like, oh, are you done? I'd, I'd like to hear more. Hmm. Uh, I don't. It doesn't ever wear me out. Um, I think it's really people are fascinating. So, yeah, that's kind of where that comes from. And I think I was looking for a new way to interact with people. And also my perspective was, you know, I mean, this was six years ago. Um, and so, you know, video wasn't as video was already kind of big then, but it was still a time when you looked at the world and you're like, wow, video is going to change everything. Soon everyone's going to be videoing everything they do. And I thought, well, if I can start learning skills now, I can be sort of on the front side of that wave because uh, I thought there's there's never been an easier way to change the world than by just making a simple video. So you can do a lot of good with it if it's used well. Hmm. See, it's funny because I've you know, I've been podcasting weekly since maybe 2013. And I've often thought like video would be fun. And then I think like podcasting is so much easier to just deal with audio. It's way cheaper. Oh, yeah. It's easier. To, it's, you know, there's much less to schlep around. Um, and there's a much, you know, the learning curve isn't so stark. Like the difference between, you know, good audio and amazing audio is something most people can't hear. Yeah. But the difference between good video right. and amazing video is what everybody's an expert in, even if you don't know what it is, how, yeah. like, how did, how did you think about like, even just like the cost, like get, you know, just use your, your smartphone or a DSLR or like, how did you just think about, all right, I'm going to start doing video and I'm going to do it strategically or did you? Yeah. I started off with a flip cam. Some people remember those uh, from like 2000 and yeah. yeah, yeah, you, you push I start down off and yeah. the USB stick pops yeah. out and you can stick it in your yep. computer. Yeah, they came out around like 2008 and 2009. That's when I very first started shooting video, but then I didn't start editing stuff until like 20, until 2015 is when I got serious. So yeah, I had a flip cam. I started messing around with GoPros. I never really did much on my phone. And then I was a photographer first, and I found out that my camera could shoot video mode. And I was like, oh, what does this button do? And yeah. it was a Nikon DSLR that could do video. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I can shoot like a really cheap looking film. <laughs> and so that's where I started. And I actually I shot um, like two, you know, well, one award winning film completely on a really inexpensive Nikon DSLR. and you know, people were like, wow, we love what you did with the camera, but it was by no means a fancy camera. I didn't have, you know, balancing equipment and levelers and all that kind of stuff. I just handheld, freehand shot everything and it just worked out. So, um, no, I had no idea what I was doing. And I realized very early on 
that if I waited until I had all the right equipment, I would be waiting for years mm. and, and way too many stories would pass me by. And so I was like, screw it. It's just ridiculous to wait for that. I've seen amazing documentary films shot by high schoolers on their cell phones with terrible sound. And I've never forgotten those films. And I thought, well, I can do that then with, with this clunky Nikon. And so that's what I did. Yeah. I still shoot with it today, though I also now have a, an older Panasonic GH4, which by today's standards is a pretty old camera, but it's a classic. So, yeah. So then how do you figure out, maybe being a photographer helped you, but how do you figure out like what to point at? Like I, I'm like, oh, I want to make videos. <laughs> and then I'm, I'm standing there with the camera and I'm going like, I don't, nothing's happening or I don't know or there's too many things happening. Like, mm -hmm. is it just a matter of, <laughs> of making tons of mistakes and, or do you have an aesthetic or a, a process? I do. I do. My, my process is to interview people who are quote machines <laughs> and <laughs> like I, I interview people that are the right people to tell a story in a powerful way. And then you know, I don't worry as much about B-roll because I'm interviewing someone who's such a great storyteller that I would sit and watch them talk for 30 minutes straight with no cutaways to anything else. And so I, I try to find people like that very much on purpose who are, unbeknownst to them, natural ambassadors for a particular story that's a nonfiction story. So, um, but yeah, but then of course I do shoot tons of B-roll and... Um, yeah, I would say my aesthetic just kind of happened by accident. My aesthetic is very simplistic, kind of very raw documentary style. I include stuff like if I'm following someone through the woods, I don't eliminate all the parts where the camera's shaking as I'm walking to keep up with them. I'll include a lot of that. I like the raw documentary look and, and that feel because that's really what it looked like when it was filmed. So um, I don't do a lot of polish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope... I always hope I'm I'm capturing a story that where the quality of the story greatly surpasses the quality of the video content. I mean, the video look or the audio listen. So where people don't even pay attention to those things. They're just like, wow, what this person behind this in front of this camera is talking about is really important. And they forget about the rest. Mm -hmm. That's my, that's what I try to go for. Gotcha. If if suddenly somebody bankrolled you with millions, what would change about your style? Um, the only thing I would change is I would get a great question. The only thing I would change is I would get a camera that does a much better job of um, auto tracking and auto focusing on someone's face because the cameras that I have really suck at that. And so when I'm trying to follow someone through, the, I shoot outside a lot while people are in motion. And so as I'm trying to track them with my camera and they're, and they're like mm. turning their head and pointing at things and maybe bending down and picking up rocks or sticks because we're always doing nature stuff. It's really hard for me to manually focus and keep them tight in focus. And uh, yeah, I've had to cut out a lot of shots that just because they were out of focus gotcha. and that's frustrating. So, so that's what I would do. You don't need a millionaire. You need a, like a 900 air. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really don't need much at all. 
Um, like I've, yeah. I've got I've got two crappy cameras that do that really well. I've got a, a, a Sony was A one E or something, or ZV one. Sony oh, the ZV1. mirrorless, mirrorless yeah. is incredible yeah. right. uh, focus. And then a oh, uh, nice a Rebel SL two. Uh huh. It's uh-huh. got some sort of funny like this was that was like a six hundred dollar camera. Right, yes. right. Yeah, it doesn't take much now. Yeah. It really doesn't. Yeah. I mean, a lot of a lot of people just do audio like on their cell phones. I mean, as long as you've got it in the right place and you're in the right space, wall wise or space wise, you can still get passable sound. So yeah, so I know I wouldn't change much. All I would do is if I had a million dollars, I wouldn't have to worry about grant funding and chasing grants, which I am terrible at to to fund all the nonprofit work I do because it's all nonprofit pretty much. And I would just go to all the places where I know I need to film to keep following a story. Mm. Um, that would be awesome to be unrestricted like that. Mm. Yeah. So one of the things you said was that it's gotten easier and easier and more and more people are posting video. That's, that's a problem too, right? Like in terms of attention and in terms of what, you know, we could say like, this is sort of a TikTok generation. Like you're making really boring stuff, right? Without a jump cut every eight <laughs> seconds or two seconds yeah. or five frames per second. Right. Usually it's three seconds is the kind of what I've noticed. When I watch videos, I actually can't help it. I always count how long it is between each cut to a different camera angle or doing something with the view. And usually it's three seconds. Um, no, I don't. I just don't really think about it like that, except only in the very beginning, I thought about that because I tried to keep all my videos to three to five minutes. And then I was like, but these stories aren't three to five minute stories. They're complicated. And I found I was very drawn to stories that were like a Gordian knot. And that's why no one had told the story easily yet in a short video. It has to be a long documentary and so what I like to say is I, I make videos about information-dense topics, and I, I, I make them available to the layperson to understand. That's sort of my focus. And uh, so, yeah, I just figure I'm always making a movie for one person. That's always my goal. My goal is to make a film that one strategically placed individual, a policymaker, Someone with a ton of money. Sorry. That's okay. We love, we love um, dogs here. So. <laughs> I think, I think uh, he, she will come down. Um, yeah, so my goal is to make a film for one person in, in hopes that that one really important decision maker will see it and go, oh my gosh, I have the ability to change something here. I'm in a position to do that. And also sometimes I think I'm making it for like a 15-year-old kid who in 10 years will be perfectly positioned to make a difference. Or as Greta Thunberg has shown us, you know, a 13-year-old kid can also make a difference. So I'm, I see it as like I'm providing information and I never know who's going to watch it. I don't think volume matters one whit at all. And I think TikTok proves that volume doesn't matter because you can have a million followers and what is it doing for the world? Not much Mm. in most cases. So, yeah. 
So when you find a story you want to tell, do you know what the story is in advance or do you know? Yeah, go ahead. Nope. No, that's my favorite part is I stum I've stumbled into every story I've ended up in and it's completely by accident and it's all organic. And I just have a feeling this is going to be a good story. I'm going to start filming myself and maybe it'll become a movie. Maybe it won't. Let's see what happens. And I just follow the leads and I go from one person to the next and I interview lots of people. And then eventually I've gotten to a point where I'm like, well, number one, I'm exhausted. Number two, I just feel like that's enough people and it's sort of at a natural end. And um, the films that I've made have been for a specific cause that also had a specific deadline to it, where like, uh, you know, maybe the Raleigh City Council is going to vote on something or the Carborough uh you know, what is it called? The Carborough Alderman. We're going to vote on something. Um, so it's always been tied to a specific thing that had a decision point that I was trying to thwart uh, or influence in one way or another that I thought would be a better outcome for the planet and better outcome for people than what the cities had in mind. So, yeah, I but I never know if there's going to be a story for sure. Yeah. And I know, and you know, one of them actually, someone, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just remembering that with 400 feet down, um, I had no idea that story existed. What happened is somebody wrote to me, a guy in Carborough, and he had seen my film about Bolin Creek, which is Bolin Creek Unpaved, and he really enjoyed it. And he heard about the cause of the rock quarry being put in the ground and decimating the Oddfellows tracked forest over next to Umstead State Park. And he said, hey, Charlie, um, this is via a Facebook message. She said, hey, Charlie, I think you should do for that what you did for Bowling Creek. I think you should make a movie about that. And I was like, uh, I'm really busy. I don't think I'm going to do that. But thanks for the idea. And then I started reaching out to some friends kind of half-heartedly who were involved in the cause. And, you know, six months later, I had a full-length feature documentary with sold out screenings at the Rialto with 430 people in attendance. The uh, like five of the people running for Raleigh city council gave speeches before the film aired. So it was crazy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure where that is. I think Boland Creek ended up getting sold and developed. Like, are you chronicling losses mostly? <laughs> No, um, the film actually had a really positive impact on local politics. Um, it really slowed the role of the Carborough aldermen with kind of their perspective, like, we can pave through these woods, it's fine. There's no resistance to this. And the film actually garnered a ton of resistance to it. And then what happened is the aldermen were kind of like, crap, now people are paying attention. Now we can't just do it. Now we have to sit and wait until they quit paying attention. Um, but the the cutting that happened was by a private landowner who owned land sort of in the center of, you know, the Bolin Forest area. And um, he very much in spite to environmentalists decided to clear cut his land. And, uh, you know, most people are pretty sure. And I, I spoke with this gentleman myself. We had a confrontation at one point. And pretty much he let me know that he was cutting the forest because he just felt like it. Uh -huh. Were you filming um, this? So, 
I did film a lot of the clear cutting that happened actually, no, I mean, but it was after the, my film. The did you film the confrontation? No, no, I did not. Uh -huh. No, um, yeah, so, neither of us would have looked good in that video. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, um, yeah, it was just so upsetting that this guy—you could tell—he just wanted to cut down the forest because he he was basically flexing his muscles. He just like, he's just like, I feel I, is, I, this is what I want to do. And damn you environmentalists, you tree huggers, you're annoying me. And I'm going to cut the trees. So you, you don't have to worry about trying to save them. But that forest is now growing back pretty quickly. Um, it could still be sold to developers. We don't know what'll happen to it, but the paving down along the Creek is still completely on hold. And the town of the town of Carborough has not, done anything into that area besides what you saw in my film. So mm -hmm. though the clear cut was not great, it's, uh, you know, the trails are coming back, the trees are coming back. I've walked through that area lots of times and it's, it's really nice to see it uh, regrowing so quickly. Oh, so am I chronicling losses? Mm -hmm. No, um, I definitely don't think I'm chronicling losses. I'm not the, the patron filmmaker of lost causes, but it, it does kind of feel like it's definitely an uphill battle. Um, but I, I pretty much, honestly, if I think something is really a lost cause, I don't get involved with it. Mm. Just because my time on the earth is short and I want to put my energy towards projects where I really feel like the film is a call to action that could actually have an impact. I don't want to make a film just for the sake of making a film. Documentaries that just document something that happened already, they kind of bore me. And I'm just like, well, but that doesn't move us forward. That's just the past. And um, anyway, that's just my feeling about what I want to put my energy into. I still watch documentaries about the past, but um, I wouldn't make one. Mm. So I want, yeah. I, want, I, want, I want you to talk to my friend Josh for a minute. Um, so Josh. Oh, he's here? No. <laughs> oh. He's going to be listening. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. In fact, I'll, you know, I'll send him the audio so he'll listen three weeks before this airs. Um, right. He's um, a business partner of mine. We um, he lives in the bio of South Louisiana. And, oh, wow. You know, he's in his mid 40s and he shows me on a map the land that no longer exists, like the places hmm. he used to go, the, the, the fishing camps, the recreational wow. areas like, you know, the Mississippi the Delta is, you know, with, with all the levees and then there's no more silt to build up the land with global warming and sea, sea level rise. The, the Gulf of Mexico is, is like, and he, he really wants to, and he's got a drone and yeah. he's learning how to use it. And I feel he's really feels really strongly about telling the story, even though like he, like he said, like, it's not going to, it's not savable. Like even you know, and of course, huh. everyone in the area is, but is financially beholden to the oil industry, which is one of the largest causes of climate change. Right. And yet, he feels like compelled to tell the story, even though, if, like from from your definition, it kind of is like a lost cause. Like it's not coming back, and there's no there's no way to reverse what's happening. Do you have thoughts for him on, you know, like yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't think that was a lost cause at all, because even if you're down there documenting the um, 
I'm trying to get my terms here. Not accretion is when land accumulates. Whatever the one is, where the land attrition. I'll just go with that term. You know, even if you're just documenting the attrition and the pull away of the native soils, I assume through all the increased flooding and things like that and deforestation, um, even if it might be too late, you know, to cause someone to go, hey, we need to stop this from happening in this area. It can be um, a canary in the coal mine story for another place where maybe it can help another place not have to go through that, you know. Um, So... Mm. I, I think that sounds like a pretty valuable story. And also there's a lot that goes with the name recognition. I mean, people hear about the Louisiana bayous around the whole planet. It's a famous ecosystem and it's linked to places that people popularize in, in culture, you know, New Orleans, all that stuff. So I think people would be pretty interested to see what's happening there. So then they could, if they live in similar ecosystems around the globe, they can be like, oh, wait. It's not that bad yet here. Maybe there's still time to save it here. So that's 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 how I would turn that story. Mm, thank you. Yeah, he'll, he'll, I think that'd be really interesting. He'll enjoy that. Maybe maybe he'll yeah. want to reach out if, to you for uh... if he gets funding. Have him reach out to me. Okay. <laughs> um, so one of the things, like you you arrive at with your camera to with a point of view to tell a story like you're you're not going in saying i wonder who's right the people who want to pave Boland creek or the people who want to save it so i'm, I'm wondering how you represent the people on the other side and i'll just i'll just frame the question with a little bit of context yeah. an hour and a half ago i interviewed um todd cashton who just wrote a book called the art of insubordination which is how to mm-hmm. dissent and defy effectively. And the, the line that, um, that I got from this is, you know, it says, don't shame, blame, or maim the status quo enthusiasts. View the exponents of orthodoxy as your future allies. So I'm wondering yeah. how you think about talking about and portraying the other side. I don't specifically. Uh, I thought long and hard about it when I was making, um, I always, I always get tripped up on what was my first film. Cause like I made my first, first thing from the prison system. And I was like, that's my first movie. But then when I look back on it, it was such an amateur editing attempt that I'm like, no, that's not my first movie. <laughs> this is now my first movie. But when I look back up across all the things that I made, the first time I really had a position piece was Bowling Creek Unpaved. And so there was a lot of discussion in here in my head as to like, there was a lot of things that some of the members on the Carborough board of aldermen did that was unethical, immoral, and unjust. And I thought if I put this in the movie and everyone hears about it, that person who was on the board of aldermen would be in a lot of hot water. So should I say it? Cause it's good for the cause. But like, honestly, the stuff that I knew was so bad and damaging to that person (laughs) that I was like, I don't want to be a part of that. Like, how can I tell the truth without shaming somebody? Hmm. And I just thought there's so much like all we're permeated with all the time is the voices of progress telling us progress is good under all circumstances, no matter what happens this is how we move forward as a population. Like, 
do we really need to give that side a bigger voice? Like, like, don't we all know that story? We know that story. And so I just thought, I don't need to waste my time informing people about what the deep pocketed corporations think. Anyone can tell us what that is. They think build it, cut it, destroy it, sell it. We already know that story. That's a narrative that we all grew up with. I'm trying to help tell a different narrative of integration, wholeness, togetherness, community, looking forward to a future where we all have a place to enjoy and be and have clean air and clean water. So I just don't, I just don't see a point in that. In every film I've made, you know, sometimes I've had the corporations message me and say, Hey, when are you going to interview us? I'm like, I, I, I'm not because we already know your story. Mm-hmm. So, uh-huh. so, you, yeah, so you're I'll, not plat- you're not pl- platforming them, and you're also not shaming them, right? I try to go to great aims to not make it like this is the bad guys. Here's their faces. Make sure you dislike them. I don't. I don't like doing that. So, mm. I mean, of course, you have to do some of it, like with this with the open net farming salmon industry, like. There's no way to not call out what they're doing, which is this other project I'm working on. But but I'm still always trying to do it in a way where I'm really just focusing on the positive message of, you know, working on the informing cons- the consumer side, like the people that buy the salmon that these people that these corporations grow. I'm trying to focus on informing them just about the dangers of the practice. And, and I don't want to drag the owners of the company through the mud in order to do that because they're people too. And I don't want things I create associated with defaming someone's character because char- character assassination is still character assassination. And I, I just don't feel good about it. So I try to not go there. Mm. So I want to talk about the Salmon Project, but, but first... Um, you mentioned that you're looking for quote machines, natural ambassadors, storytellers. Having done a whole bunch of interviews, do you have, do you feel like you understand better what makes someone good at that? Um, yeah, yes. I mean, I, when I was filming for my Salmon Folk Films project, which is still underway, I flew all the way to Vancouver Island to meet people who had flown all the way from Norway. And I was embedded with this group of activist performers who were touring on Vancouver Island. And I was with them for three, no, I'm sorry. I was with three different people for about seven to eight days. And the deal was, is I would interview them. Well, once I got there and I met them, it turned out they all hated being interviewed. Um, and I was sure that they would be like the, the quote machines that I needed them to be. But like they said straight up, like within the first 10 minutes of me filming, each of them individually said, hey, um, could you turn the camera off? I'm really not comfortable talking in front of the camera. And so I turned off the camera and I tried to keep a smile on my face. And I just thought, I am so screwed. <laughs> like I will have no footage because the stars of the show do not want me to have my camera on. What am I going to do? I just traveled all these miles and they don't want to be in front of the camera. So um, 
I've been surprised at at some people's com- just absolute hesitancy to sit in front of a camera. Um, I've been with people who can talk just like you and I are talking. And then as soon as you hit the record button on the camera, they are literally stuttering through their words and they can barely form a complete sentence without losing track of where they are. And we just have to quit. Some people have so much fear of being filmed. They cannot do it. So, um, so that's why I, I talk to people a lot first, like on the phone or via video. And I really make sure that they're the type of person that will be able to be cozy with the camera rolling. Um, I also do a lot to put people at ease. Um, One of the reasons why if I had a million dollars, I wouldn't get great big cameras is because if you set a tiny little GoPro stacked up on a couple books facing your subject and just put a little field microphone on the table on on a t-shirt, you know, it absorbs shock so the vibration won't go in they'll forget the camera's even there. Mm. And that is a huge help. It's a massive help. Because when you've got the great big camera in someone's face, you can see them looking at you and then looking at the camera and going back and forth because they're not sure where to look. And you can feel their fear and they're aware. I'm on a camera. I'm in front of a camera right now. I better get this right. So um, that's one of my favorite things is just to run around with the GoPro with the field mic plugged into it. And I've just got this tiny little thing and I'll, I'll hold it down at my belly and I'll just kind of aim it around and I'm just kind of holding the mic. No one's afraid of talking to a microphone. And I've gotten some of my best footage that way because people just forget it's there. They know it's there, but they forget after like 30 seconds and we're just talking. Mm. So I get a lot of interesting angles that way. So um, I don't know if that answered your question it ans- it fully answered half, or not. It answered but- half of my question. Which I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know what the question was until I asked it. But you're, so you're talking about just sort of the the ability to make words comfortably. But now, yeah. But oh, I, yeah. I'm also curious about rhetorically. Like there's, you know, like I'm very comfortable speaking, and I don't know that I would necessarily right. say the right words in the right order, bring in the right metaphors. Like the people who you know you call like the quote machines. Or the natural, the storyteller that you can yeah. watch. I don't think anyone's ever accused me of being like I could just stare at you for hours. <laughs> like I, you know, that's that's a compliment I've never heard. Right. So, right. so I'm wondering, right. like, what? And and specifically, the people who are really good at that, is it something that you think other people can learn, or is it just they've that been naturally graced with it? No, I don't think it's something you have to learn at all. You just have to do your homework. Like, for example. When I was doing my project for 400 feet down, it, it had a lot. One of the angles of attack that we that I chose was we need to focus on when if they got the ability to mine and clear cut this forest, when they start hitting the bedrock, what kind of shock waves will emit from that? And will it damage nearby homes? Because there's a home right next to this proposed quarry. And so I could have, for example, just interviewed a a, a geologist and gotten their opinion about this. But the geologist isn't who I interviewed because they don't have skin in the game. They're dispassionate. It's just a topic of study for them. So instead, I interviewed the people that live in the house and how, uh, you know, I talked to them about how they will feel when there's blasting happening 200, 300 feet from their back door, you know? Um, 
And then I could pull in other facts as I wanted about, you know, damage occurring to houses in close proximity to mines. But, but like, so that's what I focus on is who has the most skin in the game? Who has the most at stake? You know, who is ready to go and, and, you know, shout from the rooftops about this? That's who you need to interview. And that's pretty much who I always choose to interview. Um, like I just started this series of, um, like I just launched it last week, a new interview series where I'm interviewing caregivers for family members of dementia. And um, I'm going to do a bunch of these interviews where I'm only interviewing caregivers of family members with dementia. And whenever I've talked to people who work in the field as doctors or, um, you know, councils on aging and things like that, whenever they've heard about my project, which I've been formulating for six months, their first thing is, oh, I know a doctor you should talk to. He's an expert on Alzheimer's. And I'm like, not interested in that. I, 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 don't, I don't really care about what a doctor has to say about dementia, because this is about the voices of dementia caregivers, and no one knows their story better than them. So I'm right now, I'm only going to interview those people. And they're like, well, but they don't have any credentials. I'm like, no, they have a PhD in caretaking mm. and they've lived it. They live 24 seven with a family member with debilitating dementia. There is no one who knows it more than they do. No doctor understands it more than a person in that position. So again, I just, to me, the real strength is in interviewing like so-called everyday people in, in these really who have just found themselves in these difficult situations where a corporation is targeting a place that they love or uh, their home or the food we eat and, or, you know, things like that, or wild animals live or. Yeah. Hmm. So is it your job to put together the rhetoric to, to kind of make nope. the argument is right. Like if they're, if no. you're talking to someone who's, like someone who's a caregiver and they might ramble for 45 minutes telling stories. You have yeah. to, you have to choose what sentences in what order. Yep. How, how do you, yeah. how do you do that? Well, as much as possible, my tact with this particular project is I'm sure I'll edit some, but for the most part, I don't want to edit because that's their genuine story. And so these are long form videos. The first video is an hour and six minutes long. And what I did is I just use YouTube's feature where you can do the chapter markers. Mm. And so people can jump ahead to any chapter marker that they want if they want to focus on a certain topic. But each chapter is based upon a question that I asked. And, um, you know, it's it's challenging, but, you know, for that particular audience, I don't want to do much editing because it's such a deeply personal story to these people that I don't really want to cut much out unless it's an obvious something you should cut out, you know, dog barking in the background or they they're like, ah, let me start that over again. But um, yeah, I lost you there. Yeah, I don't know what happened. But, Weird. Uh, OK, could you still hear me the whole time or? No, I. I OK, my uh, <laughs> my browser quit. <laughs> OK. Could you re-ask the question? Yeah. Oh, I love talking to a documentarian. You understand all my limitations. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
We might just leave this in. This is that's great. Yeah, this is how podcasting actually. This is, you think you want to be a podcaster? Shit like this happens, right? Right. It's not all. It's oh. not all uh, new microphones. I remember where we were. Yeah. So you've got someone talking about a topic, maybe you know, on the edge of of tears or pounding their fist on the table for an hour, and then you tell them up front, "Hey, look." Only three to five minutes of this might end up in a film. And I tell them that up front. And it's, it's really difficult to do. That's the worst part. The easy part is the filming. That is the easy part. 90% of the work in documentary filmmaking is the awful process of titrating all that magic down into something that you think is going to tell the story. Um, but one thing I want to point out is all I know when I start a project is I know how I feel about it, but I'm not ever coaching someone on what to say. Mm-hmm. I'm asking them questions and then I'm getting their sincere reactions to these questions. They tell me the story and then I try to honor what these people have said into a cohesive narrative, but it's their story, not mine. Um, and so, um, I really dislike documentarians that coach people on what to say. They stage the interview. You can tell it's been rehearsed. You can always tell when it's been rehearsed and you can tell them, you can tell when they feed them lines. Boy, do I dislike that (laughs) when they're like, okay, we want you to say this for the documentary. I look at documentary as a pure practice where, you're documenting what's actually said in real time. You're not, you're not trying to get someone to say something very specific. So, um, or feeding them a line. So, so anyway, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to get things narrowed down. Yeah. I don't, I kind of, I think I kind of got lost in my answer there. Plus I think the dog behind me started snoring. That also distracted (laughs) me. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> we could we could all use a nap, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. So you don't you don't do the thing where you stage the meeting like like that. I, I hate that so much in documentaries where like the the person knocks on the door like, "Hey, thank you, it's great to meet you." <laughs> Meanwhile, there's a camera crew inside the house already. Oh God, I hate that. And what like, bothers that happen? And what bothers me is like most people who haven't made documentaries don't get that that's even staged because you're so much in the moment. Like it's really powerful when a filmmaker can make you forget that, Oh wait, that wasn't genuine. That's fiction. Like to me, that's a fictional moment. A, 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 a director of photography created that scene and they, they pretend it's nonfiction. And that really bothers me a lot. So I don't, I don't ever tell someone, okay, walk from over here to over there, but make it look natural. Like that just really bothers me, but, but I won't lie. And I won't say that documentaries that do that aren't impactful. They still are impactful. I just would never do that because it feels disingenuous. You're, you're lying to the audience. And so I don't like it for that. So whenever I see a documentary that does that, I'm like, you're not tricking me. I see you. So, but yeah, anyway, I'm picky. Yeah, no, I, 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 feel the same way. Um, yeah. And, but like before we get to Salmon Folk, which I do want to talk about, uh-huh. I'm, st- I'm, I'm finding myself really drawn to your, your expertise and experience just around documentaries in general. So yeah. I hope you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. I, I, don't okay. get, I don't get to talk about this stuff that much. So yeah. 
It's great. Oh, good. Because, you know, I, fi I find that like when I'm actually curious, like the conversation tends to be a better <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah. Like, Exactly. Okay, here's here's another thing I got to talk about. So so you got 30 hours of film. Like how how the hell do you like do you have it all transcribed and time coded? Do yeah. you make notes while like how do you set it up so that it's even humanly possible? Yeah. So it took me years to learn how to use um transcripts. I actually started off not using them. And then in 400 feet down, I finally started using transcripts just on a whim. I just saw something on a website or something. And I was like, oh, this person does it this way. Well, how the hell am I going to do 30 hours? I've never had 30 hours of interview footage. So, yeah, I, I, I did all the printouts for every single interview. And, oh, my God, it changed everything about my workflow process. And in making a documentary film workflow is everything. Like if you don't have a workflow for how you named every file to the, your folder architecture, to how you store all your printouts um, uh, of your, of your interviews, if you don't have different colored Sharpie markers, you're screwed. Like you will just get so lost and you will spend easily 30% of your time just tracking stuff down because you didn't put it in a, a proper place. So yeah, that was my process was starting off with that. I'm like, I got a huge 10 by six uh, piece of lumber, like really thin plywood and put it up against my wall. And I printed out a photo of every single person that was involved in the film, like the bad guys and the good guys. And I made like a gallery, sort of like a serial killer, <laughs> um, uh, a cop. I was a cop, right? I'm like... Uh, Oh, I didn't know that. What is it? What's the one of those cop shows, NCISU or whatever? I don't know. Uh -huh. Anyway, um, so I, I did the thing where I even like put the pins in it and I took the yarn and like made all the connection points. And that that helped me do the big picture of like what's gonna be told first. So I would put like a note card next to a person's face and I would move it to a place on the board to indicate where is this going in my timeline? I would actually construct um, horizontal timelines of where things would go, representing the timeline on my um, my video editing uh, timeline. And that helped me uh, even visualize like where will music come in? Where will music fade out? All that kind of stuff. So that that I really got my process locked in with 400 feet down more than anything else. And it was good because yeah. I only had a week to edit the entire film. Oh. Yeah, I had a week. I guess I guess that kind of constraint teaches you methodology. Yeah. In the last three days before it premiered, I slept for about six hours. I did nothing but edit content, edit video for three days straight with about six hours of sleep. I nearly I nearly fainted at the premiere because I was so exhausted and worn out. That's that happens to ultra athletes a lot. Right, as we cross the finish line right. and we were, we're dehydrated, right, and delirious and fevered, and uh, yeah. blisters have all popped. Yeah, yeah, fun stuff. Yeah, yeah, but that's so that's my process. All, oh, go ahead. I was all set to ask you about salmon folk, but then you mentioned music. So uh huh. I find that like good 
movie music i don't even notice yeah. generally yeah like unless it's some sort of like sweeping amazing score you know but generally like in a documentary if i notice the music it's because it's bad how, <laughs> how, how do you think about like how use because you know music is a fiction yeah right? you talk about like not having like there's not a that's true know, a flute playing I... while you're having the interview how do you how do you think about using it in a, in a <laughs> In a useful way. I struggled with it at first. I didn't want any in my material. I wanted no music. And I was just like, just like you said, there was not a flute in the background when I interviewed the person. So why would it be there? And and so Bradley Bethel, who actually runs the Carbro Film Festival, he was one of my early mentors. He's the guy that got me the gig in the medium security prison. Um, you know, he just told me flat out, he's like, look, we're putting music in it. I, I'm sorry if you don't like it. This is how it is, Charlie. Music goes in footage. It doesn't always have to be there, but for transitions, for some slow parts, it helps set the mood. People expect it. You have to have it. And so he made me put music in and I learned to love it. And um, what I learned is just that there's a big difference between music that you find and then put you shoehorn it into your footage or when you work with a composer, those are two very different worlds. And I find I, w I pretty much now will only work with a composer who is making an original soundtrack to what I have put together. That's what I like to do. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that sounds like uh, a lot of money. <laughs> like to, uh, to no, hire I mean, to score your movie versus, you know, getting. Oh Yeah. It can be. Um, music actually is one of the most time-consuming processes. Looking for music, I think, takes longer. Looking for the right music would take longer than a composer who's actually focusing on just your project. But like, um, I worked with Kaya Wells. I think you know Kaya. Yeah. Yep. So Kaya Wells did all the original music for Bowling Creek Unpaved. He did all the music for 400 Feet Down. He's worked on me with a number of other nonprofit videos that I've done. And Kai is just such an insanely talented musician. And he, he can play so many different instruments. He can sing. He does all his own sound mastering. He's just, he's just a Renaissance man. He's a, he's a young Renaissance guy and he can just do it all. And so he, since he was kind of early in his work with scoring, um, he didn't charge me much. And he also knew I didn't have much and he was willing to to work on the cheap because he knew I wasn't really making much either. I really, you know, I wasn't paid to do either of these films. Um, so, yeah. So I, now I want to talk to Kaya and ask him, like, what did, like, what kind of direction, like, what do you need in order to, to score it? He like, needs, you, you must, you, ha, you must have like a, a goals in mind that are, that are kind of rhetorical as well as aesthetic. Yeah. Well, since my film, when he did 400 Feet Down, remember, I was I had like a week to shoot it. I mean, a week to to edit. So that means he only had about a week to create an original soundtrack. So what I did is the weeks preceding it, all I could do is I would just send him like a video of people walking down a trail. And I would say, Kaya, here's a shot I know I'm going to include. The topic is pretty um, like here. They're kind of joking and it's a light conversation. So build off of that, send me samples and boom, 
Within like a day, Kai would send me a five-minute song with original words and everything that he had just pulled out of the sky. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, I love it. I just love everything Kaya makes. So yeah. And also he would bring in other musicians um, to help him on stuff. So, you know, it was a really great collaboration. Anytime I do music, I pretty much, you moving forward, I only want to use Kaya and I'm going to be working hard to get real funding to pay him real money to do the work. Because it's, mm. it is really hard to find a good music composer, you know? Well, he's not, he's yeah. not only a great musician, He's also a crazy environmentalist too. Like he really, yeah. like, I, I don't think you could just find a talented musician, Juilliard trained, who doesn't right. also have his soul and aesthetic. Right. Absolutely. It, I feel like it's gotta be someone who, who <clears throat> like for 400 feet down, you know, one of the days that I filmed, um, Kaya came with me, we put GoPros on our heads and we swam in Crabtree Creek. We swam upstream and the goal was to film. So the camera was right at water level. So we would hold our breaths and we'd swim at the camera just above our eyes would be, here's the water. And we were slowly swimming downstream. And um, at one point, these like tiny little muskrat, super cute little creatures came swimming out. And Kaya, because he's such a nature guy, he like saw them way ahead of time. And he like gave me hand signals and he's like, shh. He's like doing all that. And I was like, what is it? And he's like, quiet, come this way. And so we like slowly went through the water and the little muskrats like swam right past the camera where like Kai and I were like within two feet. They didn't even see us. And I was just like, wow, only with Kai would that have happened. And so then he's writing music later on that day for like that scene. So yeah, Kaya, I definitely think that you're pointing to something that's that I hadn't thought of really is until you said it is that, yeah, having someone who's invested in the material makes a big difference. And, you know, Kaya hikes in Bullen Forest and, you know, maybe he didn't always go to the Oddfellows tract or mountain bike there, but, you know, he spent some time in the Creek there and he believes in not turning a forest into a 400 foot deep hole in the ground that will never recover. So, Yeah. All right, so let's talk about salmon folk. So yes. maybe maybe just be, introduce the the issue. Um, so the issue is that something like ninety percent of the salmon that is consumed worldwide comes from open net farmed salmon, and these open net salmon farms are located around the world within a certain latitude above and below the equator line, um, and wherever these fish farms are located. They, they decimate the local wild seafood populations and ecosystems. And a lot of times where these places are located, for example, in the Pacific Northwest on, along Vancouver Island, they're placed in locations where it's um, unseeded, that's U-N-C-E-D-E-D, -E -E unseeded indigenous lands. So, mm. so you end up with these Norwegian fish farm owned companies getting permission from the Canadian government to put their polluting wildlife decimating fish farms in the waters that belong to the local indigenous peoples. And then it kills off the salmon runs that they have been 
um, nourishing and being in community with for 10,000 years, you know, or more. And then all of a sudden, you know, in the last 30 years, they've seen the wild salmon populations in certain rivers where the fish farms are sited right at the mouth of the river where the wild salmon swim by, you know, sometimes they're seeing returns in the single digits where it used to be hundreds of thousands to a million going up a river, you know, every season. So you're looking at basically extinction level impacts into these ecosystems that, you know, you're affecting everything, people on the land and what I like to call other than human persons who have lived in the water and thrived for, you know, way longer than humans have been here. So, yeah. Gotcha. So, so I guess there's, there's some areas where I'm not quite following. So when you say farmed salmon, I think about like someplace in Minnesota or Kansas, like inland, where they've just built these lagoons, thrown the fish in, dump them full of food and antibiotics. And then when they kill them, they add food or they add food coloring to the to their food. So they look pink instead of gray. But but this sounds like something else. This sounds like salmon farms in areas where wild salmon also. Yeah. Like oceans and rivers. Yeah. You can think of a salmon farm literally like a tea bag, um, a massive tea bag that can hold sometimes, you know, 500,000 or more salmon in, in, in a tea bag and it's in the water. It has cages around it to keep it from predators or to keep the fish from swimming away. And basically, you know, just like the way a tea bag discolors the water around it, um, that's sort of what happens. All these salmon are trapped in this space together in the open ocean, but it's not normally the open ocean. What I mean by open ocean is it's just, it's in a harbor or a bay because they don't do well with waves, that the cages will bust apart in waves. So they have to put them in calmer places, um, like the mouths of rivers and stuff like that. And so just like the tea bag, you see the discoloration happening. When you have all these salmon together, the disease, the disease transfer rate goes through the roof because it's it's an abnormal environment. So disease transmission accelerates rapidly, and basically all this stuff goes out into the water and it, it infiltrates and kills off the local wild creatures that are living in the area, not just wild salmon. It affects lots of populations. And then what the salmon farm owners do is they go, Oh no, there's too much disease in our, our farm salmon tea bag. So now we're going to dump a whole bunch of chemicals in the water. And of course, those chemicals not only then go into the bodies of the humans that will eventually eat these poor salmon, these farmed salmon, but most of the stuff washes out and goes into the ocean, which then kills off other creatures that are not resistant to it. For example, um, you know, basically they pour a huge concentration of stuff that is like peroxide right into the ocean. They just pour it right into these salmon farm nets, thinking that it'll kill off uh, some of the stuff that's attached to the salmon. Um, so, uh, but yeah, but there are actually some land-based salmon farms that they're trying to bring online to, to, uh, to try to get away from the bad optics of what's happening in the ocean because they can't hide the fact that these fish farms are horrific for the ecosystem. There's no way to hide it. 
So they're like, well, we'll move them on land. It'll be a closed containment system. They're called RIS, Recirculating um, Aquaculture System. And so, and they claim that it's zero waste, it's green and so forth. Um, I still feel like, yeah, RAS is a stopgap measure, sort of, but in the end, it's going to end up being no cleaner. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I just see the salmon as a very noble creature. And I feel like um, taking a salmon and treating it the way humans have to treat it is so subhuman that it shouldn't be allowed. So I just think that salmon shouldn't be farmed, period, in, in any industrial sense. Mm -hmm. So, so as before we get to the documentary itself, as consumers, you know, a lot of a lot of my listeners don't eat any animal products whatsoever. Right. But, you know, they have friends and family who might. Um, are there like, how can you tell? Like, what do you, what do you, what do we need to change in our buying and cons consumption patterns to not contribute to the problem? Well, unfortunately, the labeling laws are very lax. Um, if you go into Whole Foods or Fresh Market, you will, and you look in the salmon section, you'll see a brand called Duck Trap. Duck Trap is made by Maui, which is pretty much the largest fish farm company on the planet out of Norway. And um, they were recently taken to court for a misleading labeling practices, and they lost the case. But they haven't they haven't changed the labeling. It's it's still the same. They what got does it say? Oh, it'll say it's wild. It'll say it's sustainable. It'll say it's like hand raised. Blah blah blah. It's just it's just you know. There's just no enforcement behind any of this stuff. They got slapped, I think, with a very minimal fine that they just had in there. Oh, see, now I'm talking bad about the bad guys. You caught me. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> I see, I'm not, I, I'm not Mr. Perfect. Um, well, we have, we haven't, I mean, there's a difference between the facts and. Yeah. If, you know, for, if we're not, we're not shaming, like they're, they're being good capitalists yeah. right, within, within the laws. Yeah. But in terms of like how to know what you're really eating, the only way to know is to ask your butcher who will be the person that orders the salmon product to say, can you please give me a list of your suppliers? And then you go home and you Google them yourself. And um, pretty much the deal is, you know, anything from Bristol Bay, because fish farms are not allowed in Alaska, but that's where most of the wild salmon are caught is in Bristol Bay, Alaska. It's one of the last healthy salmon runs on the entire planet, sadly. Um, but it's also being overfished. If you asked a lot of First Nations groups and indigenous peoples in that part of the world who aren't involved in that fishery, they'll tell you that fishery is being overfished. So, I mean, I just don't think there's a great way to eat salmon right now. I think that people should quit eating salmon and wait a while. I think the best way to do it, actually, if I was to eat salmon, is I would look for an indigenous group that is running a fishery because they know their river better than anybody. And there's a lot of, uh, like I learned about this after Seaspiracy came out and I was pretty moved by the message of Seaspiracy, just stop eating any, uh, you know, seafood. Mm. But the thing is, is 
you can you can sustainably run um, a fishery, but I feel like it's got to be done right. But great big commercial fishery fleets, I don't necessarily think they're the ones to do it. So this guy reached out to me and he's like, hey, I've worked with a lot of native native fisheries um, and indigenous fisheries around Vancouver Island, and they absolutely know how to run it sustainably. People should be buying from these people. And I, I Googled the heck out of it and I asked a whole bunch of people and I was like, yeah, I, I would love to support an indigenous-led group that makes their living off of fishing a river that their people have been fishing on for 10,000 years. That makes sense to me. Um, I don't like it when corporations from other countries get to go into a fishery and say, well, this is ours now. So, and we have the bigger boat, so we'll get all the fish out of it. So that's what I would say is try to find a local, a local sustainably sourced, um, you know, in, indigenous group that's running a fishery. I think that's probably your best bet. So mm. a lot of people won't like that answer if they're listening, but, but they're probably yeah. working for a bigger company. <laughs> well, or, or they won't like the answer because they think we should not be eating fish at all. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's true. I'm just operating within, I mean, I eat fish maybe once a year. So in general, I can live without fish. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, yeah. You know, and there's also like the, you know, indigenous communities have been fishing a salmon run for 10,000 years because they haven't been enmeshed in the capitalist imperatives of growth that they've been fishing yes. it for themselves. I'm, I'm not convinced, you know, I'm not convinced that any group can f fully honor, like, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your list of speakers and you have, you know, philosophers and storytellers and poets yeah. and, yeah. and, and chief, you know, chief of the Namgis nation and uh, someone from the Montagila nation. Like, right. like it's, it's a, it's a relational aesthetic as you talked about, like yeah. the world and human world. Like it's hard for me to square that kind of aesthetic with market economics, even if like the good guys are doing it. Yeah, it is. It's always hard for me to square too. I mean, you know, my, my, my ultimate documentary project, if someone said, if you could make a documentary about any topic that could change the world, you know, mine would be to make a film that convinced people that we have to move away from market economics. Mm. <laughs> that would be my ultimate film. <laughs> like a share, a share based idealistic economy. That's what I hope I live long enough to see. Uh, yeah, but that's a different topic, but yeah, it is. But you know, when you, when you go to these places and you talk to the indigenous peoples that live in this area and you, you move yourself away from the objective thousand mile away view and you're standing next to a river where, and you're standing next to a person who's talking to you, and you're like, wow, this person's great, 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 great grandfather stood here and fished for salmon. It takes on a different meaning. It's just a whole different ballgame at that point. And, you know, yeah, all I can say is it affects you differently. And you're like, wow, if these people are able to make a living in this ridiculous economical construct that we all have to live in somehow, then, and it doesn't decimate the population of the wild salmon, then... I think that's a pretty good situation within the context, you know? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So t- so the the website is salmonfolk f o l k folk or folk dot com salmonfolk yep. dot com. When when should we ha- like what's there now, and when can we yeah. expect the the documentary? I wish I wish there was more. <laughs> I have been on a two and a half year break unexpectedly. Um, you know, when a lot of people use the pandemic as a way to get a jump start on all their their latent creative projects. Mm. For me, unfortunately, I spent the entire, pretty much the whole two and a half years taking care of my parents when my mom got cancer and dementia. And so I couldn't work on really anything for two and a half years. And then since I moved out of that situation after my mom passed away, I've been out here in this crazy housing crisis trying to find work and housing somewhere on the East Coast, which has gobbled up most of my time so what's there, what will be there soon, I hope, is more than six episodes of the podcast, but that's as many as there are right now. But they're, they're, they're good, strong six episodes that I think most people will enjoy. Um, I want to add that, the, the, except for the first episode, the guy who I worked with to do the episodes is Jay Seabold of Seabold Sound, and he does um, NPR stuff. I think he does American public media and marketplace and some other shows. So he's, he's a super talented soundscape designer and sound master guy. And so he really has upped the um, quality of what I can create. Um, He helps a lot. He helps a lot uh, helping me determine what order things should go in and where I need to cut. So six great episodes are there. Um, and then I'm hoping in the next few months to complete all the podcasts. Um, and ultimately, there'll probably be about 20 in, in season one. Um, there's also an Esri map, uh, which is an ArcGIS online map. And when you go there, you can zoom into different parts of the world. And, and for example, like I would go, if I were you, and look at Vancouver Island, just so you can see how many dots show up on the map so you can see just how many fish farms there are. And if you zoom in close enough, you'll be able to see what they look like. And like, if you go to Tasmania, you'll see some of the largest fish farms in the world. They're massive. Like one of them is like almost a kilometer long. I mean, they're unbelievable in their scale. Um, So I, my goal there, once I have more funding is, um, you know, I want to have the time and money to where this is all I do, pretty much. Just focus on finishing this map of every known fish farm around the world, period. Mm. And their online hatcheries. Because for every fish farm, you have a hatchery that's based online because salmon start off in freshwater and then they get transferred to the saltwater to simulate what natural salmon do, where they start off in the streams and they enter the ocean and then reverse again. But what a lot of people don't realize is that these hatcheries are still operating on the same principles where they're dumping tons of chemicals, pesticides, all sorts of junk into these tiny baby salmon. And then the water gets dumped into a river. It pollutes the river, causes massive die-offs into the estuary nearby. So you've got problems on land and, and in the ocean. So my map shows every corporate-owned hatchery and fish farm. And I make that distinction because there's a lot of really wonderfully run 
indigenous owned and other small scale owned uh, like volunteer hatcheries all around the world that are trying to help repopulate their streams with salmon. And they're not doing any of those yucky practices that the corporations are doing. So I don't map those farms, those hatcheries. Uh, let's see what else. But ultimately, though, um, uh, the first thing that's going to show up as a film is going to be those people that I mentioned before from Norway. It's Torgar Vosvik, Georgiana Kiebel, and Martin Lee Mueller. I met with them and I toured with them because uh, they were doing a live stage performance called Being Salmon, Being Human, which is based on Martin's groundbreaking novel called by the same name, Being Salmon, Being Human. Um, it's available through Chelsea Green Publishing. Uh, you can also find links to it on my website. It's an amazing book. And um, so what they did is they did this performance and it's a storytelling style performance. It's one of the most powerful performances I've ever seen. And I'm convinced that if anyone just watches this one performance, they will have their minds changed forever. And they're, they will choose a different path when it comes to how they buy salmon or if they even want to continue eating salmon. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And so I have a performance that I captured um, where I got the whole show from beginning to end. It was filmed on Malcolm Island, which is way up there on Vancouver Island in a tiny town called, called Sointula. And um, it was performed in front of a live audience of about maybe 200 people jammed into this little uh, performance space in a gymnasium there in town. And sorry, dog, dog moaning over there. And once, once I get funding to have Jay do the sound mastering on it, I'm going to put that out and it's an hour and 19 minutes long. It's magical. I think it belongs on Netflix and Amazon and I'm really excited about that to happen. So right now I'm just in the phase of after I find housing, then or if I had an angel investor who just gave me enough money so I could just get housing and not have to find a job in housing, you know, it bothers me a lot when I have to like do a job that's not this, because this is really all I'd like to focus on. I mean, there's some of the things I'd like to do, um, but but I really want this to be the primarily what I do for quite a while, because I mean, ultimately what we need in America, in the USA rather, is a push to to really get a ban on farmed salmon sold in grocery stores. That's the that's the ultimate goal for me is to have that happen. So, you know, then people won't even have to worry about being informed on the topic. They won't have to worry about is the farm is the salmon I'm about to buy at a restaurant or at Whole Foods is it is it sustainable or not? All you'd have to know is if it's being sold then yes, it's from a good source. If it's not then if it doesn't exist, then don't worry about it. So, yeah. Mm. So, anyway. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's put out into the universe that someone with deep pockets is listening or watching this. <laughs> where, where, yes. How do they, how do they reach you? Um, just through salmonfolk.com. Um, you can, I have a contact page. I believe I got my phone number there and uh, yeah, salmon. I've also got a, uh, Instagram channel. I do still have a GoFundMe up as well. Um, yeah. And I actually have technically a fiscal sponsor 
which means if someone did make a great big contribution to my to to what I'm doing, then I would be able to um, it would be tax deductible through a nonprofit, and uh, so there's that benefit as well. Okay, so, cool. So I'm, I'm not yeah. seeing I'm not seeing a contact. I see a feedback form. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, the feedback form. Did I not okay. have a contact page? I don't have a. I don't see. I see about about, and you've got um, links to the two films, and then Salmon Folk Films at Gmail, and a. That's it. Salmon Folk okay. Films at Gmail. Okay, so slash crew. So I'll I'll put a link to that. Um, awesome. Is there a link to the GoFundMe on this website? On my yeah, on my front page, you'll see. I actually have Patreon, Patreon. and a, and a gotcha. GoFundMe. All right, so yeah. we'll send we'll send everybody. We'll send everybody to salmonfolk.com. Yeah, yeah. And uh, great. Cool. Well, Charlie, thank you so much. I mean, yeah, Howard, I really, to, yeah. Let's get to get the de- deeper story of the stuff because <laughs> I, I, I see what I see what you're working on very photographically, like a snapshot of like, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And it was great to kind of get an, an arc yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of this journey that you're on. And uh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's very satisfying stuff. I'm just I'm just really looking forward to having this ungrounded chapter of my life over and when I finally can get a place and get locked in, you know, the first thing I'm eager to do is set up my desktop editing machine and just get to work and start cranking. Like I've already pre-recorded 10 podcast episodes and I've already printed out the transcripts. I know exactly how they're going to go. I'm just waiting to have time to pursue funding so I can, you know, Jay's over in LA. He's just waiting to hear from me to get going. So uh, yeah, I can't wait to get, to get back at it. So. Hmm. Well, you know, if you only did, if you only did something useful, like trade derivatives, you'd have plenty of money. (laughs) I, people keep telling me, people keep telling me, Charlie, just do crypto. You'll be rich in a month. I'm like, Oh yeah. Just, really hurt the environment. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm yeah. I'm lucky in that I see I see the whole thing as a giant Ponzi scheme. So I don't even have to, <laughs> right. I don't even have to choose between, you know, obscene wealth and environmental destruction. Right. I'm like, yeah, no, this is no good in any in any universe. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time, Howard. It's been lovely to be interviewed and um I can't wait to see how it comes out and can't wait to share it. Yeah. I'll I'll let you know when it's published and thank thank your puppies for for their um They're very well behaved. Very well behaved. Okay. okay. All, right. All right. And um keep keep this browser open so that everything okay. uploads. And Oh, uh, great. Okay. I'll do that. Yeah. Have you ever had someone close it by accident and then the whole thing is gone? No, it's still it's it's the, the thing saves it on your drive so you can always oh, go okay. to like Riverside slash upload, and it'll it'll continue. I, I have had people that I have to have, I had to chase for like a week. Like, please open your browser oh, again. Oh yeah, yeah. I see. It says recording now. Okay, got it. Okay. Right. When, when, All right. When, so we. Yeah. When we when we finish recording, it looks like within like eight seconds you'll you'll be fully uploaded because you don't have shit internet like I do. Right. Right. And okay. Then you'll you'll even get confetti. Oh wow, that's so nice. So you'll get you'll get a, a psychological reward. You'll get a cookie and <laughs> I can feel the serotonin. I can yep. feel it. It's, it's building up. <laughs> 
All right, great, Howard. So I do I hit leave studio now? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll stop the recording and then we can okay say, okay so we can say our private great. goodbye. All right, you can check out the links to everything we talked about, and maybe if you want to get involved, help Charlie with some fundraising or find out more about his projects or get inspired to do some of your own at plantyourself.com slash 515. Again, this is a pre-recorded outro, so I have no idea what's going on in the garden or in my movement protocols, but uh, let's hope they're all good, and I'll talk to you again next week. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatterley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elsbeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franz, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chali, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parangancha. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. 